and welcome to Indie by Design episode 10. This episode features Tequila Works, the creators of Rhyme and Deadlight. Indie by Design is a show in which we sit down and talk to game designers to understand their motivations, their philosophies and their goals. You can follow us on Twitter at Indie by Design or you can visit our website indiebydesign.net. This show is brought to you by Stace Harmon and John Robertson and in this episode you're listening to me, John Robertson. The following discussion with Tequila Works features CEO and Creative Director Raul Rubio, as well as lead designer Kevin Sada. It covers everything from why the two chose to channel their creativity through games, the design mantra that underpinned Rhyme and how Deadlight, even though it's a very different game, influenced that mantra. We begin with Raul Rubio discussing how creativity can come from reacting to what you've already experienced and done as a designer. I think it's always the case with creative uh, processes. Like the the creator is always, I'm not going to say frustrated, but you are not all, you are not happy with the with your your work because basically from the idea to the inception and execution, uh, well, it's a long trip and all ideas change, right? And go. So for that light, well, the core idea was finding light in darkness. I mean, it's not. A, it's not casual that all the game is is, is basically is, uh, rendered like a backlit silhouette, uh, 2.5D diorama, right? So it's so. I mean, that's why the zombies are shadows because they are literally shadows. Um, they are corpses. They are basically shells of their former selves. But more importantly, they are depicted as black silhouettes, right? So since then, it is again about darkness and finding that humanity, that life in all these dead and, and well, darkness. Then uh, uh, Ryan is, you're right, the opposite. This is a full, uh, a fully, uh, sorry, it's a game about the world fully engulfed by light. So it's a game about light and color, right? Uh, so everything is so Mediterranean in the sense that, well, they're not even black shadows, everything is blue, it's seriously there. Unless when you start, uh, you have played till the end, so you understand that this is more like a, well, an evolution process, right? Uh, so Ryan is about finding that darkness in life. Uh, it's about uh, when you are a child and you are a kid, you are not aware of the dangers of the world, and uh, you need to learn the rules of this world. And that's true for all of us, the players and your avatar, the kid. So Ryan uh, is a game where basically you, every time you think that you learn the, you understand the rules of the the world, then the world has more rules, and uh, well. In a sense, that's different for Deadlight. In Deadlight, basically, you are playing this uh, average Joe, an everyday man that is surviving the zombie apocalypse. And it's a zombie game where instead of trying to kill all the zombies, you need to run away from the zombies, right? So we said, what if we create a game about exploration, but instead of being a survival, uh, well, the experience where basically you are going to be afraid of everything, because I don't know, probably a mushroom is going to kill you. Uh, a, a pot of water is going to kill you. Uh, probably a damn pine tree is going to kill you. And of course, the wild boars are going to kill you. And those shades, absolutely, they are going to kill you. Definitely. So uh, we reversed that and we said, look, if you are a child, you are a kid, you are like in Disneyland. I mean, yes, there are nasty, many nasty things happening in, in the backyard of uh, Disneyland. Probably, probably. I, I don't have proof about that. Uh, but when you are a kid, you don't, you don't, you are not aware of that. Uh, you are basically having fun in this fantastic new world, right? So for us, uh, having grown in the Mediterranean, 
meant that we remember and we try to project these childhood memories of us uh, on the coast and in the Mediterranean. And uh, well, those moments in life where everything was new. And it was a paradox because in this world everything is old. Like in real life, uh, well, new doesn't mean that it's, uh, well, shiny and new. That means that for you it's a moment of discovery, right? And that's why Ryan starts as a game with no real goal. You are standing there and you don't know what to do. But again, as a kid, you start playing. And you slowly find the goal. Uh, you find the tower, you want to go there, and then, well, many things start to think, uh, to happen, sorry, when the, the, the island wakes up, and you suddenly, well, figure out that you are a trespasser, etc. So, without digging into spoilers, that's all I can say. But you totally understand that this is a process, right? It's about, well, these different stages and how you are facing this situation. Yeah, we could say it's an opposite game from Deadlight, but both in Deadlight and right there's a button to scream. And also Birdman. Yeah, so, and also Birdman. So, it's not totally the opposite. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the fact that you are a kid um, in rhyme, and as you say, you do... Um, experience a lot more roles as, as the as the game progresses and you experience um, a lot more uh, new new environments and you know things like new lighting and new rules around lighting and you're learning all of this thing as uh, these things as you go um, was that the reason um, that you wanted the player to play as a child in the first place so that you could bring in this, you would have a kind of a real context for um, allowing all of this wonder to exist? Um, did it come from that design side or did the fact that you wanted players to play as a kid come from a different place, maybe a narrative place or you were inspired by something specific um, prior to designing that? Uh, well, of course, uh, in this game, uh, you may have noticed that it's not a game that is, well, only driven by narrative or art or design or technology. It's, it's basically, well, a dance uh, where we are playing this tango, atua, uh, in design, narrative, and art, right? Uh, so, I can tell you that the reason you are a child, you are a kid, is narrative, of course, uh, because you, the player, not just the avatar, you are, well, like a child in this new world. I mean, at, at first you, well, you may understand it pretty easily that you can walk, you can jump, you can climb, etc. But as we introduce more and more uh, dreamlike or even mechanics, like, well, the use of light and shadow, or the shout and the, and the sound, etc., etc., uh, well, you need to contextualize and rationalize uh, those elements, right? Again, if you are a kid, you are open-minded uh, to all this. Probably if you were some kind of bald state marine, probably you would be more narrow-minded, and you would try to blow it to pieces instead of trying to reason with the right? Yeah, uh, yeah uh, of course the decision for the kid to be a kid is narrative, but from the design perspective, it's something that came in real handy, something really useful for us, because considering that the game has no text, no dialogues at all, the force that is driving the player forward is curiosity all the time. So you need a character that, as I said, is watching everything with fresh eyes, that if he's facing something unexplainable, 
he just wants to move forward and no more. Because if you were like a normal stranded guy uh, in an island, the first thing you will do is build a hut or start uh, searching for food. Instead, this kid is not worried about anything. He just wants to know more. And that is something that a player can relate to because they also don't understand where they are. So in, in some way, being a kid and being curious all the time is just the right mindset that we want for the player. So it was the perfect avatar for that. Mm -hmm. Also, in terms of bonding, uh, it was important that, they, again, uh, you, you need to bond with your avatar, but at the same time, there's no dialogue or anything in the, in the game. So body language was key. And again, what we, we wanted to transmit this idea that, again, maybe the kid is totally careless and, well, uh, uh, I don't know, unaware of the dangers, uh, but that doesn't mean that, well, uh, the player is not. So at the beginning, and this is something very interesting, when many adults start playing Prime, they care about the avatar like an adult is caring for a child. And again, the animation of the kid is clumsy in the, is, is, is pretty well. Yeah, he shakes his arms too much when he runs, he has on his back, and he has no phone for his body. And that's something that we did on Purpose because again, the body language is, is well, giving you an idea on who this character is. This is that, yeah, maybe, well, he's not, he's not a grown up, uh, he's not a hero. He's not a hero. Yeah. But basically, uh, this transmitting uh, uh, this uh, well fragility is something that uh, is encouraging again the contrast against the island and all the, for example, architectonic brutalism that uh, is, is scattered all over the place, right? So when you start playing and you are, are as an adult, you start seeing the kid, uh, you start caring for the kid. But again, uh, the opposite also is true in the sense that when you are playing for a few minutes many people start behaving like children, again, like they stop, uh, for example, caring about jumping off cliffs and, well, responding or whatever, so they start enjoying the experience, right? So, well, uh, there was a design decision and an early decision, but again, in the end, it was transmitting emotions, and those emotions, well, is what Ryan is about. Yeah. 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 Yeah, one of the things that I think is, um, there's a really nice balance set up in the game um, in that how, you, how you've described when the kid is running around or climbing. Um, you know, he's stumbling a lot or uh, he's losing his grip on the wall or uh, whatever it might be. <coughs> Excuse me. He, um, I wonder how difficult was it to get that balance between kind of transmitting that sense that this is a and um, you're playing as someone that isn't maybe as totally comfortable in their body as a as a typical video game sort of character might be um, uh, but yet you still want to give the player a level of precision in how you move around the world so I suppose how do you have the the player embody the character to a point where they feel like he's going to react as they expect him to react, but also at the same time make him seem a little bit clumsy and awkward at the same time. Do you know, do, do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned Deadlight uh, earlier because uh, there, there are two reasons for this. One is obviously, again, in continuation of what we said uh, in the previous question about uh, well, discrimination or idea design, but more importantly, in that light, uh, we had very strong 
criticism on the controls of Randall. And retrospective, I can say that, uh, yes, I mean, reviewers were right. Uh, because then there was a cinematic performance that was supposed to be a homage to the platforms of the 90s, like Another World or uh, Flashback. And the console was digital. But the thing is that even if the console was digital by design, the input was analog. Because, well, most of these days you use a stick, you don't use a keyboard, for example, or just a joystick. So the result was that the animations were really cool, but when you wanted to jump, you had to wait for the right frame of the foot putting uh, on the floor. So if you miss that frame, well, you didn't jump until some milliseconds later, and that meant that many people died, right? So we had that in mind when we started running, but at the same time, we, and this was very important for me as, as the director, that the kid had to feel the kid like Mowgli in the Jungle Book, right? So, at first, uh, I forced the animator to have all this adaptive navigation where the kid is well adapting to every surface, the, the rocks, and you can see the struggle and everything. It was beautiful. But then, when we started playing it, we, we realized that we had exactly the same problem as the light. It was beautiful, but then the controls were not precise. It doesn't matter how beautiful it is, if the game is not well effective in terms of what control and input, people are going to be frustrated, and if they are frustrated, well, it's bad for us. Yeah, so at one point we removed some of these blending animations, and we tested to remove as little as possible, but to give the player the maximum accuracy. And even if it's not a game that really requires a lot of skill in jumping or platforming, but still if the player failed and fall, it has to be because he did something wrong, not because the game uh, responded late. But on the other hand, we also had a discussion about uh, the kit being too powerful or not too powerful. Because, well, we know that we have a kit that is really good at climbing and swimming, and he can hold his breath for a really long time, but within the human parameters. We don't want the kid to make double jumps or sprint like an athletic athlete or whatever. What we always wanted was some kid that looks fragile, but not so fragile that the players get bored while playing. So yeah, for example, for the climbing, we have a lot of testing, a lot of polishing there because we wanted the kid to go fast to places, but we don't want him to do any supernatural moves. So that was something really important for us to balance as well. Yeah, uh, in the end, I think uh, it may surprise you, but uh, one of the references we had for the animation system was Jack and Esther 2. In the sense that, uh, well, Naughty Dog created, uh, I mean, it has been the basis for all their animation systems in, in all the games, but in Jack and Esther 2, it, well, it's so relevant, at least for us, because you had all these mini animations that were blending with each other perfectly. So, uh, Jack is super fluid and very expressive and dynamic, but at the same time, the controls are, well, platform solid, right? I mean, uh, they are solid rock. Uh, rock solid, sorry. And, uh, well, that's what we try to transmit. On the other hand, the Ico, for example, I don't know, in Ico or Shadow Colossus, uh, you can see how you can feel the fragility of, uh, for example, Ico or even Wonder against the Colossi. Uh, when they are running and suddenly they misstep, for example, because, well, uh, yeah. they're running too fast or they are holding Jordan's hand and then, uh, well, they are too far from each other, whatever. So they feel that you you must care for them. They are not invisible heroes, right? So 
finding a balance between that fluidity of non-detox and that artistic plasticity of clinical uh, was a true challenge. Uh, again, as Kevin said, in the end, we have to take decisions in a case-by-case scenario where basically uh, sometimes we have to place or we place it animators in the sense that everything was as fluid as they wanted. And then we have to please design uh, where, well, if you press a button, you need to jump or yeah. But we took some ideas and placed them as cosmetic animations that are optional, mm-hmm. and the game is filled with them. I mean, you can see how when the kid waters, uh, when the kid walks on, on uh, a little bit of water, he uh, rises his feet, for example. Or if you try to jump uh, and press circle on air on top of water, you will cannonball and land in your butt. That's something that oh, right. never explained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's there. We never explain it. It's not necessary for any moment in the game, but you can do it. Yeah, it's part of the experience. I mean, like, yeah, jumping and when you are landing, you can go. I mean, you yeah. never, we never tell the player that they can do it. And again, it's not necessary. But when you start playing as a kid, many people discover by themselves because they are having fun. Yeah, that's good. So we have many. Also with the kid's voice. I mean, if you try the button that you use to scream and activate objects around the world, if you try it everywhere else, like with animals or with other characters or in scary areas or when the kid has cold, is cold, or if you try it everywhere, you'll see different reactions. Yes, Even to the point that when you are in a difficult puzzle and you press that button, the kid will make a hmm, like frustrated, like, what do I do here? So yeah, those are little touches that again, in the end, uh, well, everything is... Uh, uh, to make the kid feel yes. more alive. Yeah, basically, but respecting the accuracy of the controls. And at the same time, yeah, that the player feels like they are playing the game, not just throwing so wheel or anything. Yeah, I think really the use of sound um, and um, his voice is, is really interesting that he doesn't. Um, he makes sounds, but he, well, I mean, he does kind of have a language in that sense, but it's not a sort of recognisable language as, as we know it. And I think that, that gives him quite a nice kind of like universal feel, like he doesn't feel tied to a certain nation or a certain culture. So he feels like quite a, an inclusive character for anyone playing, no matter no matter where they're from. Was that a... Was that a deliberate decision as well, or was that something that, uh, that was born out of the, the the kind of design and interaction concepts that you were that you were working on? Well, it works at the, on several levels. Uh, the kit is the embodiment of the Mediterranean, right? So uh, we wanted the kit to represent all these not only Mediterranean cultures, but also what it means for us. I mean, the Mediterranean itself, not the, not the of the people of the Mediterranean. So yes, uh, that's why, for example, the kid uh, looks at a first doesn't belong to the place, but maybe he does, I don't know, maybe he's some kind of post prince or whatever. Uh, but uh, it's something is odd. I mean, for the player, something is odd of place, but at the same time, feels ancient and familiar, right? So the kid is ambiguous on purpose. I mean, to the, pro- to the point that the kid is androgynous in nature. So if you believe that he's a gay boy or a girl, he watches you. Either way, I mean, it has no gender. But as uh, for the language, for example, again, it was extremely important for us that, uh, and this is not only for Ryan, it's just for all the games that we are making. Uh, for us, it's about the, well, human emotions. And again, it's about 
what makes humans human, right? Uh, not trying to find the differences, but uh, what we have in common. So, at first, uh, we consider using some dead languages, uh, so the kid can speak, but you can understand what he's saying, or maybe speaking uh, backwards, like, for example, some of his characters or in the games, or I think in code, that's it, right? Uh, so, but uh, or even we created our own language uh, with languages uh, like in face or, or, but in the end we thought it was far better that uh, again instead of telling you a literal story we had to put the foundations and you could feel the story inside inside your mind inside your heart right so that's why the kid well on his face you cannot understand what he's saying literally and the boys. It could be a boy or a girl, I mean, because it's, it's eight years old, so and you cannot differentiate. And that's why, for example, we're playing uh, even more with the atmosphere and the sounds, because it's not only about the kid. I mean, he may be the only human in the island, but at the same time, he's not alone, right? Uh, the island itself is, is there. So, or playing with the colors and having this uh, color palette So, in the end, I mean, it's more about how we try the player to feel, but instead of forcing that emotion with, I don't know, some kind of very sad music or whatever, is you do it and then get the game reacts to you. I mean, that's why, for example, the audio system is dynamic. And instead of trying to be some, uh, well, pre-canned uh, or in a soundtrack, what we are doing is uh, having this, uh, well, like in the old Lucas iMuse system, basically depending on what you are and uh, what you are doing and, uh, well, uh, what where you were, uh, basically the music is adapting, right? And that's why probably people remember the music because it's not always there. I mean, it's always mostly atmosphere, but then it kicks and it's a natural transition from the atmosphere into a, the actual music. But for many players, it's like, oh, the music was playing all the time. I said, no, but you thought it was, right? So yeah, it's, it's a weird balance. Uh, answering your question, uh, I don't think it was a deliberate decision. It was something that uh, arose with development because, uh, again, when we started developing the idea, it was the natural way. Uh, I don't know, it's like when you start writing and basically you discover the characters that were there all the time because you are asking the questions, right? I mean, you are not creating the characters. So in the end, uh, the kid in the kid is, is that embodiment of, uh, yeah, innocence. Um, but, but, but also the island being mysterious and all that. We wanted to, to feel Mediterranean, but not from some specific place. Yeah. So you could recognize with a hint, with a language, as I said, or with this specific piece of architecture. Ah, oh, okay, it's from there. No, because it's a mystery. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, specifically, there are some influences from the Spanish Levante, for example, but also there are places that were inspired in Paris, Jordan. Or uh, the kid's name, for example, is never mentioned. Uh, you can only read it in the credits, uh, but it's Indo-European and it's uh, well, it's from the I think it's third, the third millennium before Christ. So it's, it's yeah. so you can pinpoint so, the exact location of the island, so you cannot go there. So it's mysterious to go. Uh, one thing that we we would have hated ourselves as players is like, oh yeah, you are the lost prince of Atlantis and you are back into Atlantis because, uh, I don't know, the Greek, whatever, right? So it's an amalgam of places that for us feel familiar, but uh, again, it's not, well, we, again, if it's about what we all have in common,
hope you're enjoying the show so far. And if you're motivated to delve deeper into game design and game designers, then do make sure you check out our other podcast episodes and do have a look at Independent by Design, Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation. It's a hardback book combining inside stories that focus on specific studios and individuals alongside compelling pages of original artwork and concept documents. 26 studios and individuals are included, such as Prison Architect Creators Introversion Software, indie publishers Devolver Digital, and Gunpoint and Heat Signature designer Tom Francis, as well as a host of other talented creators. Just go to IndieByDesign.net to get your copy today. You can follow us on Twitter at IndieByDesign or on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash independentbydesign. Our website, as well as being a portal through which to listen to our podcast and buy our book, is also full of interesting editorial content for you to read. Again, that's at indiebydesign.net. The second half of our interview with Tequila Works begins with Raul Rubio explaining the idea of wanting rhyme from both a narrative and thematic angle to feel like a fable and working out how to present that in such a way that makes sense for all players. From the beginning, uh, rhyme was a fable. I mean, we wanted to make a fable. Uh, and what a fable means for us? I mean, it needs to be a story that is simple enough that with no dialogue, everyone can understand on the surface uh, a, a series of, well, literal events. So you can have a beginning and a development and a conclusion, and nobody is going to reach the end and it's like, what the fuck? Watch. This makes no sense. Right? <laughs> But at the same time, uh, you're right. Uh, we try to write the story using elements from dreams, in the sense that the uh, dreams, uh, and again, I'm not an expert interpreting dreams, that would be my wife, uh, but uh, dreams play with symbols, lots of symbols, right? I mean, I don't know, a dead fish on your bed, that means something, I don't know what, but uh, obviously, uh, from your brain, means something. So what we did was putting all these symbols scattered throughout the game. And again, we have these sequences that uh, seems to be out of place when you are playing, like uh, when you are in the desert, etc., etc., uh, that are reinforcing some ideas, some elements, like the boat, the sea, uh, the logs, etc., etc. Uh, and again, in terms of gameplay, that was really interesting because uh, when you try to explain these totally surrealist, uh, surrealistic uh, concepts of gameplay, like, I don't know, every time you scream as a G8 statue, the statue is going to open up for you, right? Uh, at, at the beginning, well, it may be odd, but then you find, I don't know, a, a mooncrest, and when you step on the mooncrest, suddenly turns into a, 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 sorry, sandcrest turns into a moon, uh, because, and then you understand that every time you cover this in shadows, uh, it's going to change, well, the, the sun into the moon, and then, well, uh, something racist, right? Uh, in terms of gameplay, it was something super uh, straightforward, I mean, in the sense that the people understood pretty well. In terms of narrative, you are right, it was a huge challenge. Because we ourselves, uh, we didn't know if people were going to get uh, which interpretation, right? And the, the first user test we did that uh, was late 2014, it was a huge relief for us because when people finished the game, uh, well, instead of asking what the hell is going on, they started to tell us what they understood from the story, right? And all their interpretations were fantastic. I mean, uh, to the point that some of them were far better than ours. So we, we decided that we had to 
to empower that. I mean, that instead of limiting it and being more, yes, Hollywood-like, with a very clear structure that it was foolproof, it was the opposite. I mean, creating this structure so people can project what they have uh, in their heart based on their life experience. And we discovered that, for example, if, like, again, to some extent, uh, so everyone can understand it, it's like a picture movie. In the sense that, like, for example, act, right? And when you are watching the movie and you are just a child, well, you can see the, the cartoon characters and the colors and everything, and the, I don't know, the bird is super fun, the dogs and all that, right? But when you are an adult, or you are a dad, or you try to have children, the first 10 minutes of art are devastating to the point that uh, you spend half the movie just thinking about that scene, right? And you can uh, empathize and bond with uh, Mr. Fredrickson. For children, Fredrickson was just the grumpy uh, senior, the typical old man that, well, that you basically, you're playing football and your ball ends in his yard, uh, you know that you're going to ring his door and he's going to say, go away, it's my now. Uh, but, but for you, I mean, you know that it's something deeper. And being aware that there's something deeper was super important in this game because, again, as, as, say, as Kevin said earlier, it's about curiosity. So you can drive the curiosity of the player just by not by telling them final hundred hidden boxes or whatever. But you know what? This world is telling us a story. Do you want to know the story? Well, it's up to you. So when people start exploring, it's not, it's not because anyone is telling them to do it, it's because they want to know more, right? And the more they discover, again, even you reach the end of the game and you didn't fully explore the game world, many of your questions are answered, but many more questions appear, right? And uh, well, again, uh, at first, we didn't know if that was good or bad, but we started realizing that people were far more open now to these kind of experiences, uh, we, we decided to, well, to boost the direction. When we did have our doubts and we were a little bit scared with pacing, though, in yeah. terms of narrative, this is what I would say, but many games nowadays, or most of them, are really, really afraid to be quiet. Like, if you have to go somewhere, but instead of going there, you wait or look around the uh, room, somewhere calls you in the radio and say, hey, you have to disable those bombs, so you have to run and do it. They don't want you to be still. And going a little bit against all that was scary because in Ryan, we obviously don't have no one calling you on the radio, but we would try to give the players some direction. Like, you feel like you have to go there, but we don't tell them why most of the time. So we don't give them a short-term objective besides from curiosity itself, which means that the player sometimes feels like, well, maybe he has to go there, but maybe he has to stay here, or maybe he has to go and see what's over there. And they can spend a lot of time playing the game, or they can run and, and beat it in, in way less time. But the thing is that watching players getting a little bit lost in, on purpose, because maybe they feel that they have to go somewhere, but they still wander around, and nothing, no, no events trigger, nothing happens, no bomb, you have to defuse, it's about to go off or whatever. Felt like a little bit like uncharted territory. And we were, well, we were seeing people playing and we were watching them going around. We were always wondering, hey, is it okay? Are they having fun? But then we ask and they say, hey, it was totally nice, it was great. And 
well, we say, okay, we're on the right track. Yeah. So let's be more brain and let's try to make the game like this, slow pace, which also fits with the fact that you're a kid. And we were saying before, you are not a hero. So if you have to spend some time trying something that is hard or you have to spend some time looking around instead of going and saving the world, which is not the case, it's okay. It's okay. It's a slow paced game. It's a, it's a contemplative game. And we are comfortable with it. But I must confess that it was not always uh, wine and roses. I remember in 2013, um, early 2014, uh, many people, when they played the game and they started exploring, uh, they, they had the, well, always the same feedback. It's like, okay, yeah, no, I, I love to explore uh, the beginning. It's super fun, but there, there's nothing. Right? Because obviously all the narrative layer was not there, right? Uh, but uh, they were right. I mean, when you have an open world where you can do everything, but at the same time, it's just background. I mean, there's nothing. It turns hollow and empty, right? So for us, uh, adding all these layers in narrative is not just us pretending to be, I don't know, uber cool or whatever. It's that uh, we really needed this because if the, if the island was supposed to be a character and tell you a story, well, the story had to be there, right? And again, if we didn't want to tell you a literal story about Atlantis or uh, gods or whatever, uh, well, it had to be something that uh, when you reached the end of the game, you, you didn't feel cheated. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. So it was quite, yeah, it was challenging. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, when, when you say it was. Um, <clears throat> you're in uncharted territory in terms of um, embracing that sort of quieter design philosophy. I mean, I know you've mentioned some some other games already, Nico, and Shadow of the Colossus, but um, were, does that mean that you weren't really taking much influence or inspiration from other games? Were you looking to different sources in, in, to sort of um, you know, maybe provide some sort of direction or, or ideas about how you might want to, to achieve something, or, or, or was it literally you were just um, having to come up with every single element of how to make that work yourselves? Uh, I, I think you can't blame me for that, but uh, we tried not to be influenced by other games until the point that uh, we were not allowed to play any games that were released or were under development where, uh, where we were making rhyme. Uh, so in terms of narrative or also in terms of structure for storytelling, our influences were more uh, in books, like the never-ending story or the little prince. Yeah. Uh, to the point that, uh, well, uh, that, that's why the focus is there. I mean, it's homeless to, to take the prince. And uh, the, the thing is, at the beginning, uh, you try to, and again, what's this trend uh, in the last 10 years, I think, is, well, disappearing now, where developers were really scared of people being frustrated in the sense that you had to guide them, you had to hold their hands, and uh, you had to, well, and tell them exactly what to do because otherwise they are going to be uh, they want that they are going to feel stupid and no one who wants to feel stupid while while, while you are playing. And there's a big difference between that and being actually stupid. I mean, no, they will, uh, no no respected player is stupid, right? So uh, what Kevin meant is that we have to be bold enough to try to do something that uh, most of the time us as designers were not well totally secure or comfortable at all. Like, for example, 
many situations we found ourselves in, in scenarios where we said, oof, why can't we add some text here? Why can't we add some guidance here? Uh, or a menu, or a cut scene, or something. Uh, for example, most of the development, I was totally against the idea of cut scenes. I mean, any cut scene. In, in the final game, we had to put some, mostly for technical reasons, because we had to uh, masquerade streaming. Uh, so, <laughs> so we had to force the player to be still uh, in, in some situations. But most of the time, everything is, is happening while you are playing, right? Because this is a game. Uh, but and even these cutscenes are always reactions to something mm -hmm. that you've done. You don't see in a cutscene the kid suddenly changing his mind and doing something totally different. But if you, for example, try to open a door, you can have a cutscene there when you see the result. This door opening and maybe something falling, something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's why we, we, uh, we have to restrain ourselves in terms of the narrative. I mean, it's like, I don't know, you are in the survival horror and you have a rocket launcher. And then the cutscene uh, launches and you are with the handgun pistol uh, because the, the plot requires you to do that and instead of uh, trying to blow the monster to pieces with your rocket launcher you will run away scared because you only have a pistol right? I mean, obviously that's a change in the character I mean, probably not the character as the designers intended but it's changing your interpretation of the character, right? because, well, you have fucking rocket launcher so uh, for us, yeah, I mean, all these kind of things are reaction to something that, I mean, it's mostly the kids surprise. Yeah, and that's why we don't have any rocket launchers in Russia. <laughs> are you sure? Oh, that's a spoiler. And that, oh shit, you're right. But the thing is that you mentioned before, Shadow of the Colossus, and uh, it's true that we want to be like those games, but not because the game is similar to them, just because they did something different. Instead of doing what everybody else was doing, they tried to do something different, and that's the only thing we have in common. Well, because even in Shadow of the Colossus, uh, even with that story, with other words, uh, it's true that you know why you're doing what you're doing. Because the, you are killing Colossus, and it's really sad to kill them, but you're doing it for someone. You're doing it to wake up that princess or that girl. So you, have, you do have a long-term long -term objective. In our case, we have this kid that wakes up in an island, you see a tower, and kind of looks mysterious, but you are not told what to do, and you don't know what's going to happen when you get there. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's a different yeah, territory. So, well, uh, I really think that we, we need to start categorizing games as uh, the genre games with children. I mean, every, yeah. every game that we encounter is a kid, uh, it should be because all these games that we, we, we are being compared to, uh, well, they are great games, obviously, but all of them are. Uh, yeah, well, you are great. The general games game. with children that, that are not Kingdom Hearts. Uh, yeah, that's one of the favorite, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, for example, in, in Journey, I mean, uh, Journey was an inspiration for us, I can tell you, in terms of experience. I mean, not the literal game, because, well, the game is very different, but in Journey, literal, I mean, we're blown away on how the game literally starts on the desert. You are sitting there, you see the mountain, it's in front of you, you go for the mountain, right? It's a linear game, and again, the mountain is your long-term goal, I mean, it's the end of the game. Uh, many people are surprised when they play that they, they start playing and they reach the tower so soon, because they expect that the, the tower was going to be the end of the game. Uh, again, we never told them that this top of the tower. That would be a spoiler. Um, yeah, I wonder as as a medium, um, 
you're talking about these things like not having the player be frustrated or a player maybe expecting or being surprised at the comparatively shorter length of something like Journey um, and Edith Finch that came out recently as well as a very short game. Um, do you do you think games are, and I'm including Rhyme in this as well, Like, do you, do you think games are, as a medium, finally getting away from this sort of very narrow-minded idea that a game just simply has to be fun and exciting to be to be valuable do you think games are finally getting to that point where they can offer a meaning beyond just pure immediate entertainment um, i mean because it feels like the, whether it's been achieved or not it does feel like people are trying more diligently to to create these to to move beyond just you know big spectacle pieces yeah hopefully i I don't think i don't think we are reaching there because i think that we've always been there you can find these kind of games since games were games the thing is that mass media mass manufactured media is gonna be always about uh flashy experiences and explosions and something easy because it's mass produced media and in, in cinema, for example, you have awesome examples of really good films that shape your whole existence, but you also have superhero movies. Mm. So it's not that one thing is going to turn into another, it's that the, that the media is, is getting more broad and there are more and more types of, of different games. The, maybe the problem is that we are calling everything game. We are calling uh, uh, a free-to-play game for cell phones with only game. A really long uh, open world game like The Witcher, I called game. And short uh, artistic uh, stories are called games and puzzles. And everything is a game. So I don't think that's something bad. Uh, well, but it's like you have documentaries, long films, short films, TV spots. In games, everything is games. Yeah, well, but uh, then I mean, you have discussions like uh, are games art and the uh, bullshit like that. I mean, it's it's totally empty discussions. Uh, for I mean, I remember when Journey uh, was released that many people said, "Oh, this is not a game. Uh, it's some kind of experience, but it's not a game. Doesn't matter. I mean, for me, it doesn't not matter at all. I mean, it was a very enjoyable experience. But you're right. I mean, and probably it's not only because of the creators. It's maybe because the gamers are maturing. And they are asking themselves deeper questions than saving the princess or saving the universe, right? And that's why, again, I don't know, uh, let's play some, some game, uh, names of games that have a, a, a deeper intention besides uh, trying to entertain us, like Tatiana Fancy, like Break, or Baker Splits, or The Witness, or, or, or the Google Home. What? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> you don't need to go home. And keep... No, but there are, there are many, many, many games like that. And there's always been. So the thing is that maybe that's true. Maybe that people uh, at the beginning, they reached for games when they wanted some way to spend one hour shooting something. Mm-hmm. And now, since everybody plays games now, or almost everybody, there are all kinds of people looking for all kinds of experiences. Yeah, but I don't think one thing is going to replace the other. One thing should replace the other. It's okay if there are superhero movies, and it's okay if we have games like Doom. It's really, really okay. But we need everything. We need a little bit of everything. We need people doing other things as well. I guess there's some faith in humanity if you get tired of shooting things in the face. Yeah. 
You never get tired of that. Oh, well, okay, yeah, some people never get tired of that. Well, it's <laughs> uh, <she's> okay, I guess. <laughs> But sometimes uh, you try to find other kind of experiences. And again, uh, I really think that the change, uh, I mean, that end of childhood for uh, the games industry is thanks to, well, the gamers. I mean, the, main, the gamers are changing, and we are all changing. Uh, not, it's not only that the creators now we wanted to be more like Altairs, and as Kevin said, we wanted more categories like short movies or documentaries or whatever. I mean, that, that that's cool. But uh, the the difference is that the people playing the games, they are who are changing. And they are changing. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is it's, um, the idea that people are changing or, and then the games are changing um, to, meet, to meet the players' change. Was there a point where... Um, in your sort of earlier lives, um, you knew you wanted to to make games, and are these sorts of experiences that you're talking about now, this kind of experiences that are now available and becoming available in games, were these always the kind of things that you were interested in creating when you first decided to get into games uh, um, uh, both of you um, or, or or were you originally interested in shooting things in the face and then grew out of that okay. I'm going to share with you uh, three moments in my life that uh, made me well uh, made me end uh, making games so the first is the first game I made uh, when I was a child was about the camel who had to avoid coconuts thrown by monkeys from palm trees. I can tell you that I, uh, I have never made a real game about that. Uh, this was <laughs> But it was the first step to write. It was the first step to write. I must say that nobody has ever made a commercial game about camels avoiding coconuts from Maybe it's the right time. But the second moment was uh, when I, I first played the, the demo of uh, Another World, and it was one of these floppy disks with, uh, I think, one megawatt in the magazine. And I remember that well, uh, it was, I mean, it blew my mind to the point that I played for three months straight, every day I was playing that demo, which was pretty short. And uh, the reason is that, uh, obviously, well, it was a beautiful game, it's still a beautiful game. But for me, it was the first time that instead of trying to enjoy the experience, for me it was uh, it, 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 it triggered lots of questions uh, on how they made this. I mean, and then when I knew that the Ichahi had uh, made everything, but the music by himself, well, that was uh, enlightening, right? Uh, the third example, I think, was Chrono Trigger. Uh, when I was playing Chrono Trigger, and Luca has this three sequence when uh, her mother is about to be crippled for life with this uh, accident. Where uh, I don't think this is spoiler. I mean, it's a good joke. But uh, the the thing is, uh, I couldn't save uh, Luca's mother, and for, for years I was obsessed with repeating that scene. And again, uh, as a designer, then I realized how important these moments uh, were uh, for, well, again, for for the progression, not of the character, but the player's progression, right? And the maybe emotions were something that uh, really could happen in games someday. And, well, the fourth, I guess, would be uh, Shadow of the Beast. 
uh, was observed with the Sipanis. Uh, as you remember, uh, there's this parallax effect in the background where basically you have some elements, including some Sipanis, that uh, are moving with you when you are well, destroyed, right? And uh, for me, I, I must confess that I, I completed, I reached the end of Shadow of the Beast uh, just because I wanted to know who uh, was driving uh, the siblings. Obviously, it was just a parallax effect, so there was nobody in the siblings. And the final boss was this giant foot, which was pretty astounding. Uh, well, yeah, uh, those were the four reasons, totally random, that uh, made me, uh, well, be a game designer. So, how was for you, Kevin? Well, I, on that realization, I've always loved games. I played games when I was three years old. I started, it was a freak show. People came to my house to see me playing games because I was a three-year-old toddler playing Aladdin Male Rack mm -hmm. and, and, and finishing the, them games. So, yeah, but I didn't want to make them. I didn't want to make them because somebody told me that I was going to be like a small gear inside a huge machine and I, didn't, I wouldn't really have a chance to do no, something. Wait, wait, they told you the truth, but then you ignore No, no, no. <laughs> I forgot about making games. I wanted to be a no a writer or a film director or a clown or I, I don't care. But then I played Braid, mm -hmm. and it was similar to the stuff you said about another world. I played Braid, and I said this is awesome. And then I heard it was done by only one guy, Jonathan Blow, and that Jonathan blew my mind. <laughs> so <laughs> I uh, yeah, at that moment I, I said, okay, this guy can do it. I'm gonna do it as well. But then I started and it was so hard, so I looked for a team. Yeah, and now they make the game, I'm a game designer, and it's awesome. And then you did this interview with that joke. It's a good joke, it was the right moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this every day. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, well, you say it's like this every day, but I'm I'm curious as to what the what the dynamic within Tequila Works is because a lot of the stuff you've you've spoken about is how <clears throat> you know you're approaching games differently and you've got a different idea and your influences come from lots of different places. Does that also reveal itself in the way Tequila Works operates? I mean, how how for example. Um, are ideas generated or critiqued with, within the team? Uh, well, uh, have you played with Happy Few? Uh, yes, yeah, I have. Yeah, not not a great okay. deal, but yes. So basically, the secret uh, in the Clear Wars is uh, that all the food and drinks are free for everyone. So breakfast are quite heavy and we always have cake and tequila and beers and pills on that. Of course, they are psychotropic drugs. You know, we are feeding you. So you first, you never feel the urge to go home and then you start having beautiful and crazy ideas. Uh, well, no, seriously, the, the structure level. Yes, it was a joke. The reason is that the structure that we set up for the studio was, uh, well, first, it's a boutique studio. That means that we are small groups. I mean, we focus on quality. At the same time, we all, uh, we all work as a team. I mean, a real team, like uh, a football team. Uh, we know each other, and basically we don't need a huge hierarchy or bureaucracy to manage everything because, well, again, imagine a football team where basically they have three producers in the middle of the play trying to coordinate everyone, right? I mean, no, uh, that's not work like that. It's essential that uh, we all understand how the others work, more importantly, 
and nobody wants, I mean, nobody tries to mess on the goalkeeper role. Uh, it's for us the same. I mean, if one guy is the other actor, it's because that person is the, well, an expert in the field. So it doesn't make any sense that an executive or a producer or, 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 or a director or whoever uh, tries to tell that person how to do their job, right? So uh, that means that the structure is flat and we all have a voice. At the same time, that means that we are sharing all the information, so the goal, I mean, the visual, uh, the vision is global and we all share it. Uh, obviously, that means that also we have so many things, so there are decisions being made, made, because otherwise, if everyone has a voice, well, it's very difficult to reach any, uh, any, any conclusion. Any conclusion. Yeah. Everything is a conversation always. Yeah? So that's what happens in theater, for example. Uh, but uh, that also means that the things are pretty small. I mean, uh, most of the most of, of the development, uh, Ryan has been 18 people. I mean, only a peak has been 35 and all for three uh, months because we're doing but like extra QA and testing. And it's true that we do have a team size that is good enough so that everybody knows each other's names and we all know each other. Uh, that, that should be mandatory, I mean, that's essential. I never find someone in a hallway that I don't know who he is. Uh, yes, the right size. And I don't, I don't have a really good memory, so <laughs> it means that the, the size is okay. And I must say that in previous AAA studios that we have worked on, well, that happened. I mean, literally, you were walking down the corridor and it's like, uh, this, this guy is missing us so he's working here. So that's right. Uh, again, uh, that allows us to, to put our personal ideas and more importantly, our, our personal, uh, well, uh, interests and memories in the game. For example, Brian has been, we always say it's a personal project because uh, literally we have put parts of ourselves in the game. I mean, there are situations in the game that happen to us, obviously, in a, in a traumatized way in real life. And, uh, for example, we have, uh, again, it's not that the strength these days in in the studios, but we have a, an internal game jam competition that we call the Clash Shots. Uh, only one stage involves alcohol, alcohol. Most of the time is uh, us having, well, um, brainstorming ideas and more importantly, developing personal ideas, right? Uh, that's essential because maybe those games are not the next games we make, but those are the games we like to make, right? So some of the gameplay mechanics maybe end in, in future productions, or maybe the idea can be adapted to another game, or maybe, yeah, in the long term, in the future, that will be the game that uh, we will do as combat, right? And uh, that's, I think that's critical because, well, yeah, it's not only about knowing the names you are working with, it's knowing the professionals. Also, do you know that you're working in a company that cares about originality? It's something that in tequila people really, really care about. Not making what everybody else does, but doing something different. We don't, don't try to do the most weirdest thing ever, but we try to do something different. So when you're working in a company like, like that, every time you're going to propose something or you're going to think about something, you think, okay, it's going to be original enough. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not the easiest way. This is something different. Otherwise, you don't even tell it. But it's because it's the way we work, and we do that every day, and you get used to. And it's okay, some people do that, some people don't do that. Some people those do have a formula, and they have to follow it. And that's uh, totally respectable, and that's a different way of working. But here, you know that you have to try to be original in everything you do.
for more on games and game creators, visit IndieByDesign.net and follow us on Twitter at IndieByDesign. The Indie by Design podcast is released every Wednesday and is brought to you by the writers and creators of Independent by Design, Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation. It's a hardback book and it's available now on our website. If you enjoyed the show, then please do take the time to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Music for this episode is kindly provided by Ben Prunty. 